0: This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
1: Welcome back to What Matters Most. I really appreciate everyone around the world who tunes in and the Patreons and the people that send in guest ideas. One of my favorite guests, and actually a real hero to me for a long time is back on the show. The book that opened my eyes, and actually millions of people's eyes, was the first version of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I also deeply loved and connected to his book, Touching the Jaguar, which I highly recommend. He is back here now with a third updated version of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. There are 12 new chapters that really shed light. and kind of takes the world where it is now, which I thought was essential, really uh, touches the moment. It's such an honor to welcome back my friend and the inspirational Mr. John Perkins. Thanks for coming on.
0: Well, you're welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful show. It's great to be with you again.
1: John, how did you ever even become an economic hitman? How does one wander into that? I, I know you probably didn't grow up thinking as a kid while other people wanted to be the center fielder for the Yankees, that you wanted to be an economic hitman one day.
0: <laughs> Actually, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, but, uh, you know, I went to business school, and and uh, uh, then I ended up going to the Peace Corps and uh, hanging out in the Amazon and in the Andes for three years. And then I was recruited uh, by this consulting firm in, in Boston, and I, before when I went in the Peace Corps, I'd been re- actually recruited by the National Security Agency. I'd gone through a series of lie detector tests and, and passed them all, surprisingly to me. And I uh, was told, but but uh, I, I had this inkling to go to the Amazon, to, to to I knew that I wanted to live like indigenous people. And I knew there was a few places in the world where you can do that. The, the National Security Agency, I'd been recruited by a, a family friend who was uh, very high up in the agency. and and he's told me you know well yeah go go live in the jungle for a while you'll learn good survival skills you'll learn another language you'll be more valuable to us when you get out and you may not actually work for the national security agency the NSA you may end up working for a private corporation that has close ties with us and i was pretty shocked by that paul but it's it turns out that's pretty common is <laughs> interrelationship and so my last year uh, I was three years in the Peace Corps, I'd extended for a year, and uh, my, during my last year, this this man contacted me who was a senior vice president at a big consulting firm in Boston, and he ended up hiring me as an economist, and I very soon became chief economist and built up a staff, and really, although my job sounded pretty fancy, you know, chief economist working for the uh, our clients were the World Bank, the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, governments around the world, and uh, yet what But the real my real job was to to, you know, to gather resources for the United States to really create a, a, a global empire, which is more a corporate empire, actually, than a U.S. empire, although it's very much supported by the U.S. Uh, so my real job was to be what we call an economic hitman.
1: And would you tell people exactly what that is? I know, of course, I've read all your books and you've been on, but somebody listening for the first time, I go, what exactly is that?
0: Yeah, the job was, and, and you know, I learned in business school that this was the right thing to do. I, I later discovered that it was, it was basically pretty criminal. But it's uh, my 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 job was to identify countries that had resources our corporations want, like oil or other minerals, it's in the ground, and and to arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. And but the money wouldn't actually go to the country, it would be used to hire our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in the country, power plants, industrial parks, roads, highway, uh, uh, ports, things that ended up benefiting few very wealthy families, actually, and making big profits of our corporations. And statistically, it, it looked good because you can show statistically that when you do that in a poor country, it increases the gross domestic product that what we used to measure uh, prosperity in a country. But, you know, it, it, after about six or seven years in, in that job, I, discuss, I I began to understand that gross domestic product really only measures how well the rich are doing in big corporations. And so, although it seemed like the whole, the, the economy was growing the way we measure it, but in fact, the rich were getting rich and the poor were getting poorer because money was being diverted from social services, healthcare, education, and other such things to pay the interest on the loan. And in the end, the loan couldn't be repaid. So the IMF would go in, or I'd go in in the guise of the IMF and renegotiate the deal, which meant that the country would have to sell its resources, its oil or whatever, real cheap to our corporations without environmental or social regulations or without many, if any. And uh, it also meant that the country would be required to privatize its, its, uh, its public sector businesses like its utility companies its water and sewage system and sell them to our investors drop most of its regulations on on the corporations that were involved uh drop taxes on the rich and and lower wages on the poor I mean what's called neoliberal economics and I've just defined it with those, with those conditions so we go in and and uh insist that the that the country do these things and you know, my education had taught me that was the right thing to do. But as I as I got deeper into this, and I speak Spanish fluently, and and, and several people, like the, like the heads of state of of Panama and, and Ecuador and some other countries, pointed out to me that really what we were doing was making the rich rich richer and the poor poorer. We were not bringing more prosperity to the majority of the people in these
1: countries. Did you have an inner reckoning, a spiritual awakening, or you just couldn't get drunk enough anymore? How did you then have the courage to speak up knowing your own life would probably be threatened if not exterminated?
0: Well, it was was tough because, as I said, about seven years into this process, I I, I understood that what I was doing was not what I was telling people, including myself, that I was doing. I was selling a lie, basically, of prosperity for everyone but it was really hard to get out because uh, you know there's a lot of pressure put on me not to get out plus you know I'd grown up the the son of a a boys boarding school teacher in New Hampshire we never had much money like we had a house given to us by the school and food and so forth but I was surrounded by very wealthy boys and I was I grew up very jealous I, I heard all these stories about these magnificent places where they lived and travel around the world and suddenly now I'm traveling around the world I'm flying first class I'm, I'm getting very well paid and uh, staying in hotels eating in the finest restaurants meeting with presidents and you know once I once I knew what I was doing was wrong I didn't want to admit it Paul I I think I think it's an important story because I think an awful lot of people are in this kind of position where even though they may understand that they're contributing to climate change or species extinctions or destroying environments or whatever, they find ways to justify it because it's convenient to do so. And you know, it, so as far as the awakening, at at, at one point I, I began to really understand that. Oh, I thought I was living the American dream. I was actually uh, traveling around through time zones, living on valium, alcohol at the end the evening, going to sleep, waking up, and filling myself with caffeine. And then I really wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And and, uh, and then I, I, I slowly, you know, eventually one moment I, I had a very enlightening moment when I just decided I had to get out.
1: What was the reaction from the powers that be when you put that book out? You know, the first version.
0: The first version, uh, right after I get out, I, I decided to contact other people that had jobs like me and also the jackals I didn't mention before, but Leaders of countries knew that if they didn't accept our deals, people we call jackals would step in. And these are these are people that overthrow governments or even assassinate their leaders. they you know, the United States, unfortunately, is, has a long history. We've admitted uh, Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, admitted to doing these sorts of things with Allende and Chile and Arbenz and Guatemala and Lumumba and Congo and in Most Deck and Iran and on and on. We have a history of you know offering the carrot to these country leaders that they and their their friends who own the industries are going to make a lot of money off these deals or the stick if you if you don't accept these deals then you know you're probably going to get into a lot of trouble and so i started contacting jackals and former economic and other economic hitmen and immediately i get i get anonymous phone calls threatening my life and that of my infant daughter uh and I took them seriously, Paul, because I knew these people. I knew what they could do.
1: You survived, too. They tried to hit you, literally.
0: Yeah. Well, so right about that same time, uh, I was offered a carrot. So I'm, so I'm getting the stick, the thread of the stick. And I am offered a carrot. The president of Stone and Webster Engineering Corporation, a, a, at the time, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, engineering consulting firm in the in the country and perhaps the world took me out to dinner and, and offered me a, a, a job he offered me a, a half a million dollars he said you know we we would like to use your resume and our proposals you were chief economist at one of our rivals you had a great resume you won't have to do any work for us uh but just let us use, you know, we may ask you to fly down to Rio de Janeiro once or twice and go out to dinner with some clients and do stuff like that. But you don't have to do much. Just let us use your resume and I'm prepared to write you a check tomorrow morning for half a million dollars. Well, Paul, this was the late 80s. <laughs> half a million, there's nothing near it today, but it was more then. So I'm being offered the, the carrot and I've been, I've been hit with a stick, you know, or threatened with a stick. So, you know, he said, just don't write the book just don't write the book because you can't be in this business and write a book that closes these things so I gotta say you know I I took the uh I took the money and I you know in my own defense I, I didn't go out and buy a huge mansion or fancy cars I I I went back to the Amazon and I uh, I formed a non-profit called dream change and eventually the Pachamama Alliance uh, to help protect the Amazon to help change the dream of the modern world and I start I wrote five books on indigenous people and shamanism. And one was fine with me doing that. So I, you know, I protected myself that way uh for, for a number of years. And uh after and now 9-11, I, I was in the Amazon. And when when I came home, I, I flew up to ground zero. And as I'm looking down into that pit, I knew I had to write this book. And, and not that there's any direct connection, but it just I just knew I had to expose what I had done. But I decided I wouldn't contact anyone else. I would write the book completely in secret. I would write a personal story, a confession. So I wouldn't contact anyone. And I would write the whole book. No propo- I'd f- publish five books. I know you're supposed to write a proposal, get a, get a, a little bit of an advance, and then write the book. No, no, no. I just decided I'd write the whole book. And once I had it in the hands of a very good New York agent and he was distributing it to publishing houses, I figured it was my best insurance policy that anyone, you know, in the alphabet agencies, FBI, CIA, NSA, those those (laughs) alphabet agencies, who might want uh, to see me done away with would know that that would just sell a lot of books, uh, anything suspicious. So I I figured it was my best insurance policy. So, So at that point, I went ahead and wrote the You know, the first, it's a trilogy now. Really, this is the third
1: trilogy, and that was the first. It was an eye-opener for me, but not surprising. And it feels to me like the government is this front organization for these corporate multinationals that really have no loyalty or border. They're just extraction parasites. And the government shills. They find these sociopaths with good haircuts, or they're wild, outrageous figures like them green or a palin it's the rodeo clowns take all the heat while the uh the real dark stuff that's going on is back way behind the curtain now where you never get into the theme park to take a look
0: okay. it's a great way to put it yeah it's like the uh kind of like you know Oz Wizard of Oz you know it's what I call the corporatocracy actually it's 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 yeah these people that there's this revolving door you know so um it's it, it's it's these big multinational corporations that often call themselves American corporations but most of them don't pay any taxes in the United States uh but they do use the U.S government and you know there's there's a revolving door of of you know you've got people like Condole- Condoleezza Rice was a great example she you know been a high executive in the oil company comes out of Secretary of State where she does makes a lot of favors for the oil companies and then goes back to that kind of job but uh, the you know it's, it's just over and over you know the Bush family is deeply connected with uh uh oil companies and it, it's it's true among Democrats. I mentioned a couple of Republicans but Democrats are in the same you know pe- so people high up in the in the US government elected officials and, and non-elected officials uh they're broad all the time but, but the interesting thing is in the United States what we would call corruption anywhere else is legalized here so corporations can essentially buy senators and and, and house of representatives uh, pe- pe- Congress people by financing their campaigns and, uh, uh, and letting them know that well if you lose the election or if you decide not to run in the next term we get a very lucrative job for you as a consultant or a lobbyist or or whatever so uh we we the corporations today really own the U.S government to a large degree uh, and uh and it's not just the U.S government it's governments around the world and you know this book this third in the trilogy is it goes into China's economic hitman strategy China's doing something very similar to, to what I did except they, they're actually much more efficient they, they've learned from our, our mistakes and and, and our our, and our successes and you know in their case most of their big corporations are are, are are a little more than half owned by the US, by, by the chinese government uh so so there you've got even a, a different situation where the government and the corporations are very very closely tied formally transparently if you will in the united states it's less transparent it's obtuse it's done kind of under the table but completely legally under the table in china it's it's done pretty much openly but it basically It goes, you know, they're both, both, both are headed in the same direction. And incidentally, many of the companies that call themselves American corporations, of course, they're very much Chinese corporations, too. You you take a company like, like Microsoft or Apple or so many of their products are made in China. And there's a very, very close interrelationship between. All most most all big American international multinational, what we call multinational corporations that may call, may also claim to be American, they're on the New York Stock Exchange, etc. Close, close, inter closely interwoven with China and its economy.
1: Pure fascism, to different degrees, and that's what we're headed to now: fascism, more, merging of corporate and government power, authoritarianism. And most of the idiots will vote for it because watch out over there, you know. And that's what we got going on. The irony, the tragedy, is it like you say, it's a death economy. This whole thing is a bad crack binge. It's it's extinction based. It will not outrun physics. You can't have uh, ongoing growth on a finite resource planet and turn it into a garbage can. It's impossible
0: you can't have infinite growth in the areas that we've been growing uh, I you know I, yes and the death economy is is basically it's China and the United States are in a competition they're they're racing toward disaster uh these two countries create almost 50 percent of the world's economy and and close to that in the world's pollution and uh you know, they they both are, are using this economic hitman strategy and, and have developed what, what you mentioned, and, and I refer to constantly as a death economy, an economic system that's consuming and polluting itself into extinction. That's depleting in the short term all the resources it needs for the long term. And it's based on the idea that these corporations must maximize short term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. and. Uh, it's taking us to the precipice of of self destruction and destruction of many many other species too. And you know, it, it's got to end. We we need to turn it. We need to turn it around and create a life economy, which would be an economic system that's based on maximizing long term benefits uh, for people and nature. And it would it pays people to, you know, mine the plastic in the oceans, <laughs> you know, to, to 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 clean up pollution and to regenerate destroyed environments, or coral reefs and and, and forests uh, all over the world, old mine pits to regenerate these things, and to recycle and to develop technologies like wind and solar, and and ones we haven't even heard of yet, we haven't even conceived of yet, but technologies that no longer tear up the earth, that that ravage the planet upon which we live. So we can have growth in those areas, in areas that help starving people feed themselves, to learn how to feed themselves, There's a lot of room there, uh, but we can't continue growing in the way that we've been growing, which is this huge emphasis on on materialistic gain.
1: What kind of organism self-extincts itself through that kind of insanity?
0: Well, we we know of one that does, don't we?
1: Yeah, it makes no sense at all. (laughs) It's dangerous intelligence, but not smart. There's no wisdom in a whole lot of technology.
0: No, you know, you got to wonder... I remember it being in the Amazon one time, and they have these cutter ants, you know, that cut these leaves and carry these long lines carrying these huge leaves, these little tiny ants, and they take them into a and it, this huge mound that they that they build, and they they chew the leaves up and they create a kind of a a, a mulch that then has fungus growing on it. and they feed that to their queens and the larvae. And so they're truly industrialists with real division of labor. And I remember one time saying to a, a, a biologist, a PhD biologist who was watching these with me and the am pointing out, I'm saying, you know, these ants have incredible intelligence. And he said, oh, that's just instinct. And it made me wonder, you know, like, how do you separate instinct from intelligence and to realize that these ants are they're actually what they do is that they're helping the earth in many ways that they're creating life in in the process of what they're doing and they end up becoming flying ants eventually uh and and the indigenous people catch them and, and eat them and they, they so the indigenous people take care of them protect them and then they they catch some of them and eat them but not not so many that they'll destroy the, the you know the, the colony they, they're very careful about that there's an, there's an amazing intelligence there amongst those ants and among the indigenous people. Unfortunately, we, in what we think of as the modern world, have kind of forgotten that because we've, we've put so much emphasis on on short-term maximization of, of materialistic consumption and, and profits.
1: Uh, we take questions from the audience, and this one's from the Earth itself. John, wouldn't the Earth be a lot better off if humans didn't exist, or at least there was only maybe a million of them? <laughs>
0: well that's a loaded
1: question Uh, you know the earth not me I'm just
0: yeah I know well it depends on how you define the earth too doesn't it uh you know can, can we say that the earth is better off without the dinosaurs I don't know what better off means but I do know that um that we're headed toward that that toward that outcome if we don't if we don't change we, we get to change you know and we, we fear change it's a, it's a it's a really important question I don't mean to make light of it but I think human beings can coexist really well I, I'm taken by you know my indigenous friends in the Amazon and places with they have a philosophy and, and incidentally I don't I I know they're crazy ones or brutal ones so I don't idealize individuals but I do idealize their their long-term view of the world and their idea that we, they are a part of nature not apart from they don't try to control nature they live with nature and I think that's our biggest problem is is we've, we've we've created an attitude of human supremacy that we are supreme over nature and climate change is teaching us that we're not the pandemic showed us you know that a little tiny invisible uh, organism can wreak havoc on us for periods of time, and and it could, you know, can keep returning if we're not careful. So, I think what's important here is to recognize that we've really alienated ourselves from our planet. And you know, Paul, if you think so, so one of the themes of my book is that the United States and China need to. they can disagree on many, 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 many things, but we need to understand and agree that nobody survives on a on a dead planet and if you think about you know aliens if there was a a huge fleet of UFOs hovering above us and the aliens were threatening to destroy us all what would we do probably the Chinese and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Americans and everybody else would come together to protect ourselves I would I would think and history tells us that that's what would happen when enemies are faced by a common and much stronger enemy than either of them individually, that they, they, they come together. you know, uh, The enemy of my enemy is my ally kind of thing. And so I think it's time for us to think of ourselves as the aliens. And it's not humans. It's our, philo- it's our current philosophy of maximizing materialistic profit and, and, and consumption. And if we can think of that as an alien Philosophy, then let's all come together to to stop it. To understand that we are a part of nature, not a part from nature. And and Paul, I think we all need to take hope and what uh, that it's, it's been happening: benefit corporations, peak corporations, solar, wind, green new deals, conscious capitalism, which, which there's so many things that have been moving in that direction, and to realize that throughout history, for the most of the two hundred thousand years or so that we've defined ourselves as humans we lived in a life economy we saw that we were a part of not apart from nature we lived with nature and within the limits of nature we didn't try to control nature until kind of a blink in history a fairly recent history
1: i've actually been putting out the bat signal for the uh, interplanetary forces to help us and I don't think they would even attack. They don't need to. They just need to wait another 20 years or less. And we'll do the job for them. God bless them. He, I just interviewed a guy who has a great documentary coming out on these UFOs that uh, and the cover-ups, of course. Since you brought it up and you're so bright and connected, I was. what do you think of the UFO phenomenon? Uh, in my mind, they've been here forever. And I know too many people I could count who haven't told anybody but had direct contact encounters, seen things. I've seen things. Have you had anything ever that you've seen, or what's your take on all of it?
0: I I have. I, I describe in some of my books that when I was in the Amazon one time, I you know I I saw these three blue globes that came up to me, and another time I I took a little journey on on one, um, and uh, you know people will say, well, it's because I was I was on uh, ayahuasca or something, but but it was a very real experience to me. You know, how can we not believe that there are other forms of life out there, and hopefully a lot wiser than than us? I remember one time, I I, I took a group of people. There were about thirty three of us, and we were we were invited to sit with the Dalai Lama in his home in Dharamsala, India for an afternoon and 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 he, he opened up to questions and and one of the people asked him about his whether he believed there were UFOs and it you know other life out there he said well of course how could there not be you know he looked at this vast universe of course there's other souls out there but he said he looked at this person he said, but you know if I were you I wouldn't worry about it we got enough problems right here on earth take care of those <laughs> but you know so so my you know my supposition about the the idea of aliens attacking is meant totally as a metaphor I would hope and believe probably that if they're smart enough to come from wherever they come from and be hovering above us they're probably going to be smart enough not to not not to come down and try to interfere in a in a malicious way but I use that analogy because it 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 brings to mind this idea that if if we were threatened by aliens or if we're threatened by an enemy, you know, people who've been enemies for—look at you know, look look at the United States and Germany and Japan after World War II. These terrible enemies, and we came together to oppose the Soviet Union, which we saw as a common enemy. And history is filled with examples like that. So I think if we can, if we can just define ourselves right now as the aliens, because we have this alien philosophy of being superior to nature, being above, of being able to whatever we want with, with these resources and destroying it and creating this death economy, if we just see ourselves that way, and and if the Chinese and, the, and everybody else, the Brazilians and the Indians and everybody else can, can buy into this concept that we need to move beyond this alienating philosophy this alienating goal of maximization of uh, of you know materialistic consumption that that results from uh, devastating the environment if we can move beyond that let us understand then that we must de- de-alienate ourselves
1: you mentioned that time in the amazon and the ayahuasca journeys we talked about that when you came on to talk about the beautiful jaguar book how has that prepared you spiritually and how has it changed your spiritual perspective on what's happening right now in the world with all the transformation and the earth? And maybe we go away, maybe we get it, you know, in the scheme of the universe, no big deal. But how How does those, How does do those experiences influence your outlook today?
0: You know, I love the concept that uh, most of the indigenous people I know uh, believe and so do many, many other people and have historically that life never ends and I think in fact uh Einstein uh, you know kind of said that like matter and energy never end they just they just interchange and transform and uh, so I think this our, our spiritual aspect is 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 forever and it, you know the Indigenous people like to think of past lives and future lives as being trees and and rivers and, and not just other people animals um, but you know, I think perhaps more than anything, uh, all of these experiences today. If we if we look at ayahuasca, and and how popular that's becoming today, and 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 I have some misgivings around that. I I have, I have to say this, but but the fact that it is, and it, and that vegetarianism and veganism and medicinal plants and this this whole movement that I think the plant world is speaking to us the animal world is speaking to us the plant world is speaking to us the microbe world is speaking to us as in the COVID uh, the environment is speaking to us the whole planet Gaia is speaking to us and telling us hey look if you humans want to survive you got to change and if you don't change, you're not going to survive because the rest of us are going to take over. Uh, and so I think you know from 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 that standpoint, whether you th- look at it as a spiritual thing, or I think you can look at it as spiritually, but you can also look at it as completely practical. That that is in the process of happening. And you know we we've just you know we, we people talk about well, when the catastrophe happens, but the catastrophe has happened to. A whole lot of the human species and and many other species that have gone extinct, and all the migration and all the suffering. You know, half the world is 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 in entire need of, of food and, and nourishment. Uh, we've got a very serious situation. It's it's comfortable as Americans or Europeans and some Asians and people, and and people in in you know there are a lot of wealthy people and in, in in the countries where people are extremely poor also but we we sometimes forget that the catastrophe has already happened to a, a lot of the planet
1: that was my point on that earth question when i just felt like every we're the only species that i can think of that if we went away it would be better for every single other species like if the bees go away that's a disaster for everything you talk about an inversion but if we were to leave i feel like we are going to sound like the agent in the matrix react much more like a virus, a cancer agent, than a mammal that seeks harmony. We are this parasitic element that have honestly only been a real pain in the ass for the earth for a few hundred years. I mean, we're just this killing machine. I call us Homo Colossus. And, you know, if we kind of go the way of the dinosaur, although they didn't self-extinct, the poor things caught a bad break after 40, 50 million years, which is a hell of a run. You know, we're a pain in the ass for like, 100 years, we're like not even a nanosecond in relational time to the Earth's life. And then, you know, the Earth takes them 100,000 years, even 50 years or a million years, 10 million years, and it's all well and good. And nobody even remembers that, you know, thing that was so destructive for about a nanosecond. I don't, to me, that's where it's headed, unless either there is extraterrestrial or some sort of massive shift. I honestly don't see it, but I'll try to do my best until then. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well you know I spend a lot of time with the Mayan people of Central America and I I take I write about them and I take groups every year to the sacred sites you know very small groups 15 people so if any of your listeners want to go just go to johnperkins.org. well I don't have next year's trips announced here because I just finished one but we will we'll put it up and if you put your email address in the little box that says subscribe uh, that it'll be announced when the next trips come up but the Mayan people, you know, went through something very similar, and it ended in the year about about the year nine hundred on, on our calendar. That they built these magnificent cities out in the Yucatan and in Paten areas of Central America, Mexico, and Guatemala, especially in Honduras. And they they you know these phenomenal pyramids and temples, and uh, in the process, and, and they built many, many cities that we didn't even realize until, you know, LIDAR technology, which can pierce through the earth with, you know, using, I guess, some sort of uh, laser technology from the satellites, is now showing that there were so many cities, like 60,000 communities in this area, more than there are today, and magnificent. In the process, they drained the swamps and, and cut the trees. And so over time, they changed their climate. And they could no longer survive. They they couldn't grow their crops, and so these cities that had been peaceful went to war with each other. And then eventually, the the people who were serving the rich, who the rich lived in the cities, the the, the nobility, the you know the kings and queens and and in uh, and their entourages. Uh, the people who were growing the crops and taking and basically paying huge taxes to the cities just left they went back up into the mountains or out into the jungle and the and the forest took over and so for uh, from the from about 900 until the mid-1800s nobody knew these cities were there they were covered with trees and still you go to this you know i take people to tikal which is this magnificent site and some of these huge pyramids and temples have been excavated but next to them is is a something that looks like a mountain with trees it's another temple or pyramid and it really it's humbling to see how quickly nature takes over it takes over so rapidly and you know if if we humans disappear for whatever reason New York City and every other city in the world eventually will just collapse and be taken over by by nature so you know you're right that if um, if if we go, uh, the planet will be no probably no worse off and perhaps better off. But on the other hand, I have a 14 year old grandson, <laughs> and I don't want to see that happen. I, I I believe, and I also kind of if you go back to the spirituality, maybe there's a reason why we're going through this. Maybe there's a reason why human beings are on this planet, and maybe it's to to really understand how we can uh, live within the system of nature and that we're now being seriously challenged to really look at that, that we've gone through this swing where for hundreds of thousands of years, like, you know, 200,000 years or so, we um, we lived within nature. And then, as you said, it's been within the last couple of hundred years. It probably started a couple of thousand years ago, you know, the Persians. The greeks and the romans and the early chinese where they began to try to control things but it's really ramped up in the last hundred or so years it's really ramped up in the last few decades and you know but so but maybe there's a there's a reason for that that this this swing toward toward destruction you know if you look at what so many his great thinkers have talked about you're going into you've got to go into the darkness to emerge into the light dante's inferno idea (laughs) and you know histories in literature and mythology uh, mythology of all cultures is filled with this idea that you've got to go deep into the darkness to emerge into the light maybe maybe that's what we've been going through that's my hope and i'm going to stick with it because uh, you know prophecies are self-fulfilling and if we prophesize the end we'll get the end but if we can prophesize and work toward creating a life economy then we have a very very good chance of getting there but we have to believe it and we have to make it happen and we have to take the actions that'll make it happen
1: so the film is actually a thriller it's a time clock time bomb will the human race figure it out will we get there or not and that's All these souls came here to try to figure it out because you've taken some deep trips and seen unbelievable, uh, what's the Pink Floyd line, uh, caught a fleeting glimpse out there on the edge. Isn't it all just really one energy system playing with itself and Maya, the separation is an illusion. Now we have to play by the rules, better not stand on the railroad tracks, you're going to go back into the infinite light rather quickly. But you've seen it, right? You know
0: you know and i also look over the stars at night and think it really it's it's pretty insignificant what happens on this planet perhaps on the other hand perhaps if you you know think about the greater energy reaching out maybe if we if we can really create evolve into something new that really understands how to be truly good stewards and relate to the planet. Maybe that reaches out. I I don't know. But, you know, I want to go back to what you asked earlier about the spirituality in the the Amazon. And one of the things that I learned and what the books about shamanism and touching the jaguar go into in detail is that perception molds reality. We know, Paul, that, you know, there's no United States, there's no China, there's no corporations, there's no there's no religion, there's no culture, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it molds reality. It, it has a huge impact on reality, changes reality. And that's, you know, that's shamanism, and it's, and it's psychotherapy, and it's it's quantum physics, and it's marketing, and it's politics. I mean, all these people practice this. So we have this perception that we've been working with for a few decades now, uh, that we must maximize short-term materialistic gains. And that's the big problem um, for a few people, for a few people. And if we can turn that perception around and say, no, that successful humans will be the ones and the ones that we'll put on the covers of our magazines, the ones that we will celebrate are the humans who will lead us into the idea that uh, the goal is to maximize benefits for life for all life and 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 that would include the rivers and the mountains or all nature for human beings and animals and insects and all of nature so if we change the perception of what it means to be successful Uh, we can turn this thing around and you know it's i can see it happening even in the corporate world where i I know a lot of executives who want to look more and more to the long term They, they say you know they have children they have grandchildren uh they want to create a world that those children will want to inherit and i really hear that from the chinese i taught at an mba program in china which is considered the top one in china top in the world where these Chinese students have been have been singled out to be the future leaders of China, one after another, I, I would hear from them. I'd go out and drink a few beers with them, have share some food with them in addition to the classroom, and I'd hear them say, "You know, we created an economic miracle here in China. We brought over seven hundred million people out of poverty. We had about ten percent economic growth for thirty years, ten percent a year, and nobody else has ever done anything." To compare but at the same time we've had horrible pollution we kids we've we've grown up with outrageous terrible pollution and and bad social conditions bad working conditions we don't want that for our children and so we've but we've proven we can create a miracle we're not going to create a green miracle and uh yeah I came back from that teaching experience and I was speaking in at Cornell University where there was a gathering of some 200 2000 mba students from all over the united states and i told them that story in a speech and i said you know don't let that happen let the let's let's you let's us become let's let the united states become the greenest country and then i said let's have a world cup every year who which country is, has done the most to, to make for better social and environmental conditions and uh you know i think that these the younger generations around the world have experienced so much suffering and the United States may be the outlier that are our, our, we really haven't experienced that much you know the, some pollution in Los Angeles and but we haven't experienced anything like like what Africa's experienced or China or India or the majority of the population of the world and they've experienced it and they they want to move beyond it the question is can we change our perception of what it means to be successful amongst those forces that are driving all of that? And that's what, again, I call the corporatocracy. So this is all being driven by big corporations and the governments with which they're very closely aligned.
1: And those people will die out, too. I've never seen so much denial. Like, And then there's the crazy idea every once in a blue moon, let's go to Mars or somewhere and make that work. I have an idea let's fly up with our hands you know like it's nuts it's the denial level how how do people get involved there's a lot of young people that listen to the show you had some stuff in the new book how can the listener around the world find their niche their lane their role and make a difference to be a part of this new beginning new understanding new world
0: you know i i do talk paul in the book about a lot of specific things and and uh, one of the I think one of the most important places to start is to recognize that although we're victims of this system we're all also collaborators Uh, we're all consumers and many of us are investors or 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 workers in these corporations or even our management or owners so we all have some we all have a lot more power than perhaps we realize and I like to suggest that, you know, that people pick a corporation that they want to see changed. It could be a Nike or a Walmart or an Exxon or whatever they pick and, and get become part of or start a, a consumer a campaign. And it's so easy on social networking to now do this. And I've had so many high executives who have children and grandchildren say, I want my company to be greener but I know that if I lose market share or my profits uh my stock price it goes down for a period of time my executive board will fire me and replace me with someone who only cares about profits and market share so please tell your listeners tell everybody you speak to John say you know tell them look send me emails or tweets or whatever you want to do it and say hey I love your company but I'm not going to buy your products anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair wage or clean up the pollution you've caused or stop polluting. Whatever whatever the item is for that company, send this to, to the company and send it to all your social networking circles and ask them to send it to all of theirs. And and these executives say, you know, I don't read all these emails, but somebody does. And I get a matrix once a month that tells me what what our customers are are, are, are saying and I I can take if I get a hundred thousand of these sorts of things that that from people and all of them are demanding that I change a specific area and I take this to you know to my primary investors and my executive committee they'll listen they'll have to listen so that's you know that's one thing we all can do And, and the book describes many things but I think ultimately Paul for each individual And again, in the book, I go in five questions that are very important. The first one is, as you as an individual, what do you most want to do for the rest of your life? What will bring you the greatest satisfaction? And I would answer that by saying, I I, want to write. I love to write, Paul. I just enjoy writing. Even when I'm not publishing things, I I still like to write. And I have a friend kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum who's a carpenter. And he says, I want to work with my hands in wood. And the second question is, how do I do this in a way that's going to help transform the death economy to a life economy? It's going to turn things around. And I would say as a writer, I'm going to write books that are intended to inspire people to do that, like the like the books, you know, like the, the new book does that, I hope. <laughs> and my carpenter friend would say, I, I'm only going to use sustainable materials. And the third question is, well, what's stopping you? What's getting in your way? As a writer, I might say, Well, I know to be a really successful writer, I have to write every day and I just don't have time. My carpenter friend might say, Well, my, my clients don't want to don't want to pay the extra price for sustainable materials. And the fourth question is, when you look at that perception that's it's blocking you from doing what you want to do, how can you change the perception? So I would say, when I asked that question of myself, I'd say, Well, wait. I could t- turn the TV off an hour every night and write. That would give me an extra seven hours a week. I could get a lot of writing done in seven hours a week. And maybe t- turn off for two hours. They'd give me 14 hours a week. And my carpenter friend would say, you know, I'm going to tell my clients that they, if there's an extra price, it isn't a cost. It's an investment in the future. It's an investment for them and their kids, you know. And, and then the fifth question is, what actions do I take? every day and for the writer you got to write for the carpenter you got to build with sustainable materials and keep telling your clients look and tell their kids your parents are paying a little bit more for this house or this cabinet or whatever but it's because they're investing in your future and i think you know no matter who you are out there and i I like this particularly with young people just really look at what do you want to do for the rest of your life what will bring you the greatest satisfaction and then do it and do it, in a way, don't let you know. Look, confront the blockages. Confront those who are saying you can't do it. You don't have enough education. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not, you don't have the right physique. Whatever the heck it is that you're being that you're being told, or you're telling yourself, turn that around and do what you what's going kind to of bring you the most satisfaction. But do it in a way that makes the world a better place for the for future for the future. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.